that's got its own tension and balance in uh, in making sure we don't we don't box the people that we're trying to lift out of inequity by then coming in with this established paradigm that okay well you're this way and therefore you'll be here and a lot of the sometimes a lot of the historical narratives can um, can build a sensitivity which means we can't sort of bust out of uh, of the established paradigm. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Jack Manning Bancroft is an Indigenous man from the Banjalong Nation. In 2005, he founded the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience, a social movement that uses mentoring to unlock the power of marginalised Indigenous youth and to connect non-Indigenous people to Indigenous Australians. Uh, Jack has won a, a slew of awards, uh, the Australian Human Rights Medal, GQ Man of Inspiration, and the New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. In 2018, he published The Mentor, uh, an autobiography which tells the story of his life and of the development of the Australian Indigenous mentoring experience. Jack. Welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start off with your upbringing. Uh, your dad's a non-Indigenous uh, actor, writer and teacher. Your mum's an Aboriginal painter from Lionsville. Um, what was it like to, uh, to, to grow up in that environment? Uh, oh, look, in lots of ways, pretty, pretty normal. Like we kind of grew up in um, inner city Sydney and we're in Balmain. We're kind of had a nice, um, nice time in Balmain, I think, where we're still in that kind of intersection between there are lots of kids from lots of different backgrounds, lots of housing commission, um, youngsters at our school, like our family didn't necessarily have a lot of cash and there were some people who, um, who were probably on the wealthier side and there was a nice sort of intersection of different um, energies in Balmain and then we, you know, with both mum and dad, they're, um, they're both... Uh, principled people when it comes to uh, caring about their impact on the world and really trying to live a, um, a good life and, and trying to stand up for, for other people when you come along the way. So I think that kind of that subtlety, that sort of crept through into my, um, you know, conscious or subconscious. And most of my focus as a kid was trying to play cricket for Australia or, or become a professional athlete in some sort of field. So I wasn't too drawn into... Um, more of the social or moral, you know, elements of, of a life until a bit later on. But you have written in your autobiography that being somewhat fair-skinned and Indigenous was like being an undercover cop. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, well, it's just the, the sort of the, the one-liner steals the, um, steals the explanation a little bit from it. But, it's, yeah, you know, I, I look... Uh, I look like a white man and I, you know, we live, lived in New York for the last four years and we're, you know, in conversation and working with a number of different people from the African 
American community and lots of different activists who are creating change. And, you know, you'd just be in a dinner conversation and um, they're a bit more direct over there. And so, you know, someone would be like, well, for you, Jack, you know, you're a white man. I'm like, oh, sort of, yeah, this is like the actual story. My dad, my granddad's had black skin. My mum grew up from two different families. I've got black history in my body. Um, I've got DNA. But, yeah, I've had all the privileges afforded to someone who looks like a white man. I don't get screened uh when i'm walking through the shopping center i don't i get let into you know pubs and clubs are treated in a certain way and uh and there's just some yeah some serious bias that happens depending your skin color and um so that's yeah that's sort of the luck that i've had uh with how i've been landed my sort of being and what i look like and who i am how did your mum teach you about your indigenous heritage uh, I look at, we just, we, we probably learned as much from mum about just work ethic. Like she, she was just painting and painting and painting and painting and still, um, still does. And so she, in, in painting, you know, on our dining room table, or you wake up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom and mum would be up painting. And a lot of our family stories and reflections on the area and the place we came from come from is sort of woven through mum's paintings and I think for us like you know the more I've learned about being Aboriginal more I've learned about being a human being is it's always unveiling itself and we all have different um, different experiences which bring to life a culture um, and which make that that have meaning so I think early on I was a lot more I felt like I had to learn how to play didgeridoo or I had to you know, learn how to speak with a certain um, Aboriginal English dialect so I could feel like I was legit. And over time, I've become a little bit more comfortable with like, well, this is just who I am and I really don't have to be anything other than who I am and, and then let the journey kind of unfurl itself as I, as I make my way through it. You went to Sydney University on a, a scholarship to St Paul's College, which is Australia's oldest residential college. Uh, you've said that uh, to say I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about privilege was probably an understatement. It was more like a potato farm. Uh, tell us about those early days at St Paul's. Yeah, well, anger gives you currency. It's just so good to be able to go, right, I've got an enemy, um, and it's motivating. And so I, I got a scholarship to go to university, and uh, and it was a they tried to tried to create a, a road scholarship for an Aboriginal person in Australia was effectively kind of the model, and then I got the experiment was kind of dropping me into I got scholarship, then I was dropped into Paul's College, and we're getting you know dinner five nights a week, um, there's a three course meal, and you're wearing a suit and a tie and an academic gown. It was so weird, and it felt so class like the class separation from normality felt really strange and there was um yeah big exorbitant parties where there'd just be so much excess and there was it really felt like I was in a bit of a Gatsby world and at the same time I was hanging out with Indigenous students at the Koori Centre and I was studying all of the, the challenges of Australia's um history our civil rights movement sweating over how to change things studying what was happening abroad studying Mandela and then just like going so deep into Mandela's world and 
And in that process, I was like, oh, this is easy. I think I worked it out. The way I'll create changes, well, I just blame those privileged guys that I live with and they're the problem. Uh, and the challenge is, I think, when you do that, whilst there are lots and lots of reasons to explain um, problems of the past and and there are things that people have done which you can pretty, pretty close to saying, you know, that was wrong or that was unjust and you did benefit from from what happened. If you struggle to take people from where they are and where they can go to afterwards, then you just lose this huge section of the population that have so much potential for change. And that's been part of my life's work so far over, you know, almost we ran concerts when I was 17 at the uni and set up Indigenous scholarships and started AIM when I was 19. So it's been, you know, almost 17, 18 years worth of work and and it's constantly been a struggle to to work towards the middle to see the best in people, to take anyone from any background and see if if you can, you know, make some sort of progress uh, from where they are to, to where they can go to. Yeah, it's a fascinating observation because I think uh, those of us on the progressive side of the spectrum uh, are more inclined to take the uh, accept you from your starting point standpoint from someone who's grown up on the wrong side of the tracks than from someone who's been born with a silver spoon in their mouth. In some sense, we we sort of have this sometimes have this idea that uh, uh, people who've been born into disadvantage uh, are more malleable than people who've born into privilege. Yeah, and it's also like you, you're in you're in a club as well. Like isolating people means you've got a club and you're in a gang and you're like, oh, this is cool. Well, they're the outsiders um, and there's something to talk about. Like it's always nice to talk mm. about the other team and, you know, it gives, it creates like binary worlds give us a space to make some sort of sense of it all. And when, when you start to remove those things, then it becomes a lot harder because there's, there's not really permanent frames for, for any of the fields of, of being in a life. And, and I think that impermanence is really challenging. It's really confronting. And it, and it then challenges a lot of your um, core beliefs. And I think one of the lines that I've learned to love over time is an F. Scott Fitzgerald line that the sign of a first-rate intelligence is holding two conflicting thoughts at the same time and, and still functioning. And I, mm. I think that's what the gift of that dichotomy between Paul's and hanging out with Aboriginal University students gave me and over time trying to sit in the middle of, of different worlds of people with and people without and seeing the humanity in each person is um, is a challenge. So then you're, uh, you're 19 years old uh, and you decide to make this pretty audacious move of starting the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience, uh, kicking it off at Alexandria Park Community School. Uh, what made you start the program and how did you do it? Yeah, look, I think the simple one-word answer is guilt. I was guilty that I had an opportunity, that my grandfather hadn't had opportunities within our family. Lots of people had missed out. Uh, and, you know, I got this education, effectively a free ride. My hex got paid for. I got, you know, my board covered at the scholarship uh, at, at college. And I knew that firsthand there were so many more Aboriginal people who were much more disadvantaged on every measurement system than I was. So I was like, all right, well, if I get this scholarship, which is how I got the gig, I just said, if I'll put something back and I want to, if I do anything in my life, I want to do something big. So I just became obsessed about, okay, how, what's the lever to pull here? How do we do something at scale? And as I was pouring through all those people that had done stuff before, you know, with Mandela, it was 
that idea that education um, is the most powerful weapon to to fight inequality and and that really resonated and I think the other part of Mandela's journey which has just sort of became been really inspiring for me and something I've tried to reach towards often fails but but continue to try to reach towards is is how do you forgive people um, and then how do you in that moment of forgiving people and often people who have done the oppressing how do you then design together and sit down at the table together and so the model of AIM was really born out of sitting around uh, Indigenous University Games in 2004, which was a university games for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 200-odd Indigenous University students were playing. I was like, hang on a minute. There's going to be more than every like rugby league player and AFL player is Aboriginal. Oh, we're ever told is we're amazing athletes. Oh, such good athletes. You've got born athletes. So in your DNA. Why isn't anyone saying you're born university students? I just couldn't, as a storyteller, couldn't understand why that wasn't the dominant uh, media stereotype and and so that was the genesis of AIM you know can we take can we tell a different story can we tell a different role model modeling myth and at a similar time uh, Dr Chris Sara was was forming his work at Sherberg which eventually became the Stronger Smarter Institute which is at its core sort of based on this similar concept of of high expectations and for us it became about trying to flip that script and that established narrative and give the kids a chance to self-author a new narrative of Aboriginality and to, to be get into more of an imaginative goop around uh, the labels and the definitions of what it meant for them to be who they were and give them the freedom to be whoever they wanted to be and open up their world and, and go from there. And then on the other side, giving a space for university students who would never have had a relationship with an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, the chance to build that relationship. So you start to change the dinner time conversations and hopefully in 20, 30 years time, the way decisions are made around the boardrooms or in governance. Uh, and so I think that was that was our intent and I think we've done okay since then as we scaled it from there to now using a similar bridge building device to bring people together all around the world. You tell the story of one of the early uh, incidents in which a student put his hand up and said, uh, you just feel sorry for us because we're, we're black, eh? How did you respond to that? I just, like, gulped and then wanted to run out of the room. Uh, and then I can imagine. Bumbled out. So, yeah, I, I think then bumbled my way through explaining my Aboriginality. And there was something in the response which actually... I think sort of struck a bit of a chord for the kids to give us a chance. And it was, I just said, look, these uni students are going to learn as much as you guys. And, and that I've always believed, like I looked at the kind of world vision model of funding charity and really sort of leading with guilt up front as a way to motivate and powerful motivating factor guilt. So is anger, but it, it just didn't sit for me as a way that you actually were lifting up the person's power who you were talking about. You're kind of saying this person's life sucks and everything sucks. And, and if you're always hearing that story as a person on the other side, even if you get the funding to help you eat or help you go to school, you're accepting the premise that, oh, well, I, I, I suck <laughs> at a really basic fundamental level. But I, I think acknowledging that these guys are, you know, a lot of these kids were underserved or have been, you know, challenged by systemic uh, disadvantage being, you know, pushed upon them, but at their core, they had sixty thousand years of genius in their in their being. Their DNA is resilient, surviving the ice age, of being one of the first groups of agricultural farming. Like this is a smart cultural group of people. Now let's let's work out how we how we sort of balance out the storytelling 
platform and and give the chance for the opportunity for other people to come in and build those relationships, which is how we position it for university students as well. Not the victimhood, come and help the poor Aboriginal kids. Like this is the coolest thing to do on campus, and this is an opportunity for you to be a part of something that you will that will change the country and in turn potentially change the world. And you'll be able to tell your grandkids about it. And I think lifting the expectations all the way through has meant that. Um, there's a certain energy when, when we get that right, when, when the aim world sort of comes to life. Because it is quite different from the way in which uh, schooling or uh, medicine works where the idea is that you come in as someone who has a need and the expert is there and, and you don't go to the doctor's surgery thinking that you will teach the doctor anything that day. Uh, you just go in thinking that the doctor will, uh, will tell you what's, uh, what's wrong with you. Uh, so did you find you needed to to flip those expectations of people who are mentors or did people who are mentors kind of get that from the start? Yeah, I think where we lucked upon a, a good design was we, we looked at sort of big brother, big sister model, which has been quite popular in America and then at scale mm. in different places around the world. And that one has got a, that's a, that's a very, um, it's called big brother, big sister. And really it's about at its core, you go in and, and you're going to be, another family member you're going to be really close to this person who maybe doesn't have a mum or a dad or someone they can rely on and and when it, when we dug into it it was sort of hard to see what success looked like and I felt like it was dangerous um it was dangerous in one element that there was no clear start point and end point so you could be a big brother for six months or 60 years and that's a big opening brief for a mentor and it's a big opening opening brief for a mentee and the other part was you could do all of the training before, but then it's then you leave it up to the big brother and big sister just to work it out. And that didn't feel to me like uh, a, a way that you could you could charter an educational journey. And so we, we set about designing a structured mentoring program, which in essence was building a, a world of uh, around the mentoring experience. So we had, you know, at different stages and we're a little bit flexed now, but give or take the whole you know, mentoring engagement, the whole hour or the three hours or the three and a half hours is sort of scripted like a theatre show down to different beats, down to five-minute increments. And our, our facilitators would be creating this world, which made it really within one frame that the educational experience was there and you could actually, you knew you were working towards trying to change someone's perception, a kid's perception around the lesson on racism or around resilience or around identity. But the there's all the macro zoom out on the design frame for it was it meant they always had stimulus to talk. So if the mentor and the mentee suddenly wanted to just talk for 20 minutes and not do the activity, we also win. Like it's that's good because then they're building a relationship. So in the defiance of the frame of the world, uh, there's still that safe space for bonding and for building. And so we've that's what we've we've worked on from the beginning, which I think is actually meant we've got something to teach. Um, we're not just sort of matching people together. So we've created, I don't know now, probably about 400-odd one-hour lessons we've experimented with over the course of 16 years, which we've now refined into an imagination curriculum, which is forming the spine of a, a university we've just opened called Imagination University. So being able to, I suppose, know some stuff, which is the job of the mentor and philosopher, I think, to inquire and to go into some knowledge fields. We sort of dug into some fields, and that was... What we said we'd do for the kids is, as an organisation, 
we'd keep digging and we'd provide a pathway for the mentors and the mentees to gather around some texts and some experiences and, and then use that as a bouncing um, base to then go into the change experience. And how did you bring in the uh, St Paul's uh, students? Yes, uh, they came in as, as volunteer mentors and uh, and then we did the training for them around, broadly did training around um, working with Aboriginal kids. And at the start, we did like some pretty intensive sort of cultural awareness training, which was quite literal. And, and then as we scaled around the country, like you, every Aboriginal person is different because every person is different. So when you start to get into spaces of, this is the Aboriginal experience. I, I personally, as a um, when I'm in a sort of teaching frame, I really struggle to work out how to explain an individual Aboriginal experience. So try and train. We've tried to just train curiosity and sensitivity, understanding some of the context, because you can read Bruce Pascoe's book and that can give you a broad brushstroke context, and then you can understand. You know, you can read up on the local area, and then you can meet a kid who's just so different to everything you've ever heard, and having high expectations that they can be anything and sort of throw out some of the, the historical baggage which is holding them back to give them the freedom to just fly. That's got its own tension and balance in, uh, in making sure we don't, we don't box the people that we're trying to lift out of inequity by then coming in with this established paradigm that, okay, well, you're this way and therefore you'll be here. And a lot of the, sometimes a lot of the historical narratives can, um, can build a sensitivity, which means we can't sort of bust out of uh, of the established paradigm. And so it's a real tension that which we're still kind of working through as we work. We're now working with a number of different cultures and different places globally. But I, the main piece has been learn what you can, sit down with someone if you don't know, ask, and and try and do it as politely as you can and uh, and be sensitive and just don't go with the assumption that you know everything. Do you have uh, favourite stories of students who've come through the program? Uh, yeah, at different stages we had to do like we had a couple of these couple of sisters who were the first ever uh, school captains of their one was the first ever school captain of Dulwich Hill High School, Alicia Johnson, and it was the first time in 137 years um, that had an Aboriginal school captain, and then her sister Emily became. The second ever school captain, I think, the year after, or a couple of years after that. So early on, the store, like individual. And no one in their stories, school had ever had ever even attended university, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think that was uh, that that experience with with their family and and the broader school. I'm I'm not sure exactly. I think there'd been other non-indigenous kids that had been to university, but yeah, I think they were the first indigenous kids to to go to university from definitely from their family and then I think more potentially from their school more broadly, and mm. so they. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a real it's a dangerous one the hero story uh, because you you kind of hold people up in lights for a period of time and then that's everyone can then access it and then you kind of move on and they've got their own life that they've got to keep living as well and so we we tried as much as possible not to 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 reel out too many individual stories and I've tried to, in the same way that you know I've got to know a bunch of fancy people and sat with prime ministers and kings and queens and celebrities and blah, blah, blah. And I've seen how flawed everyone is. And so I, I don't want to, you know, don't want to have to hold up the hero story of, of one kid in the same way that I don't want to pretend that the prime minister has to be perfect. I, I think that there's been really cool effort 
and thousands upon thousands of kids that as we've stood on the other side of the bridge and said, look, if you want to, if you want to do this thing, you're going to have to step up and change it. Um, are you, are you ready to do the work? Watching time and time and time and time again, kids, uh, defy the, the established sort of cycle of low expectations and just go, yeah, I'm going to bust through this thing and be complex. So I think I really, the thing I love is when you, when you just, when you meet a kid who's, who's got their identity, but that's not the, and, and that's not the only thing they are. They can be lots and lots of things and seeing that complexity is, uh, is really nice to be around. What What's your ideal attitude from a mentor? I'm thinking, you know, for presumably most of our listeners will be non-Indigenous listeners and so would be more likely to, to, to step in and uh, and volunteer with AMA as a, as a mentor. Um, what, what do the best mentors bring? Or is it that they don't bring too much? Yeah, look, I, I actually think it's the role of the citizen to be a mentor. I think it's, I think it's for everybody. I think it could be as so I've sort of studied different ways of being and um, different philosophical frames. I think if if every single citizen in every single nation, part of the social contract was to be a mentor and a shepherd of knowledge, of ideas, not just for your family, but for the whole village of people that you come into touch with in your life, I think we'd have a stronger social fabric of, of passing on knowledge. And I think we'd also have a uh, a stronger village of of raising children and, and education. So I, I think the role of the mentor is to inquire, um, to to try and chase knowledge so it can be passed on and pass it on for free because you want to you want to share the tools that you've acquired so humanity can be better. And and I think that is that's the role of the mentor. I think it's a role that, that everybody can and should play. Yeah, it's interesting. Before I went into politics, I um, would, didn't have a single phone number of an Indigenous person in my phone. I was one of those people who cared deeply about Indigenous politics but uh, uh, didn't have any kind of solid, close relationships with Indigenous people. Uh, and I suspect that could well still be the case if I'd stayed a, a professor at the Australian National University rather than entering politics. Um, so apart from volunteering for the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience, how would you advise listeners to, to change that, to, to build some kind of genuine relationships with Indigenous Australians, particularly for those who, who believe that fundamentally the Indigenous experience is integral to, to, a better, to building a better nation? Yeah, I think the the tough one is the mathematics, right? Like we're only three percent of the population, so um, I think that's what's hard. You end up in everyone else's phone number, and you're like, "Oh man, I got to be the Aboriginal person that everyone talks to." So I think right, story right. helps. You know, digging into being a student, and that's what I really loved about the the second wave of Black Lives Matter, and you know, some people we've worked with in the states, different stages, and and the message of, "Hey, don't ask me to." to tell the Aboriginal story again, like there's some pretty good books out there that have been written. Uh, you know, if you can, if you can engage in story that's there, there's some really fascinating films and TV and, and great historians. And, and if you dig into those things, then you get to have a relationship with lots of Aboriginal people. You know, you can look at your bookshelf and be like, wow, there's six Aboriginal people in my house right now. Uh, you yeah. Really loved uh, Melissa Lukacheco's Too Much Lip this year. Yeah, yeah. There's and there's lots of people who, are, and, and that's that's where I think you know, as a when you're an underdog or you there's there's not too many of you. That's the place where we get to 
um, really shown. Like more recently in my life, in the last sort of three, four years, like I've just I really struggle with doing the the storytelling in front of an audience or doing you know something like this, which I'm just not really doing anymore. Um, I just think you're an interesting dude, man. I like the way your brain works, and so. <laughs> Thank you for making an exception. No, oh, good. And I think part, but I'm like, I'm loving painting. I'm loving, it's a space where I can go and I can be free of having to, having to explain um, everything I've learned about being Aboriginal to people who, who really want to know and want to learn. So I, I think the first part would be you can, you can bring Aboriginal people into your home through text. And, and that's, that's one, one way to do it. And I, it's great to see, you know, Kaya is an Aboriginal character, um, the doll who's on play school now. And there's there's really good stuff that we're doing in Australian film, television and, and storytelling more broadly. And then I think specifically, contact a local land council near you and offer to volunteer. Contact a local Aboriginal medical service and offer to volunteer. You can get in touch with us and jump onto a waiting list. You can ask that very question that you've just asked there, which is, hey, there um, any Aboriginal organisations or Aboriginal people that I could connect with in the area? And let's see, <laughs> and, and just sort of follow your nose and be curious as you as you move through. And I, I think the, yeah, the, you get you also move to a place where there's lots of Aboriginal people. It might be a little bit easier than living in a city. So there's, um, yeah, I think there's, there's there's lots of pathways and having that having a sense that something might be missing, I think is an important uh, hole for all Australians to, to try and fill. And I think it's the next phase of our national identity to, you know, I was looking at the Wallabies play the other night and they're wearing an Indigenous jersey. And I, as I say that, I do an asterisk with, um, or inverted commas, my fingers. It'd be really nice. And I hope we get there within, you know, 10, 20 years where there's Aboriginal stories woven through a, an Australian rugby jersey. And that's just the Australian jersey. It turns out, you know, an Indigenous jersey is an Australian jersey and we're, we're going through the goop of reworking our national story and finding that connected tissue and I think everybody, um, everybody that lives in this country should feel and work towards feeling some sort of connective tissue to, to all of our histories, including the, you know, the really rich narratives of 60,000 years before, just in the same way that we go back and always rabble on about Aristotle and Plato and all those guys, like lots of cool thinkers here. And with ideas and with history and with story, we can bring them into our lives and we can learn. And I think that's um, that's the thing that everybody can do right now is research the history and storytellers and thinkers from the land that you're on and, and let that inform the way you live your life. Yeah, as you say, it's a jersey is one thing, but uh, watching New Zealanders do the haka at the start of the rugby is pretty special or the way in which uh, their leaders can, uh, can recite uh, some Maori sentences, the way in which uh, they have dual naming of, uh, of capital cities and major organisations. It just feels as though Maori culture is better woven into the tapestry of New Zealand than Indigenous culture into, uh, into Australia. Yeah, I think we're trying. I think I think we're in the we're in the you know we're a lot better than where we were 20 years ago. Uh, I think if we get a voice uh, parliament, I think that could be really cool. I reckon that you know that piece of writing, statement from the heart, is one of the, just one of the best pieces of writing uh, and diplomacy to bring all those different people together and and to to find a text that everyone could endorse is is really cool. So I think we're I think we're making moves. 
you're a young bloke and you've written an autobiography. There's a sort of audacity about that. But then there's a, a lovely um, modesty about some of the aspects of the book. Uh, one of my favourite lines uh, you have is, almost every single thing I've done for the first time I've stuffed up. Uh, and you give the example of having to fire your little sister, Ella, four days before Christmas. Uh, tell us about that and, and how you dealt with that from a leadership perspective. Uh, yeah, I just kind of went into like robot world a little bit, kind of, all right, tasks to do, hold it together, do this, sit down and um, and and work through that experience. And I just, like, she's just bawling and, um, and just looking at me and saying a few words, which um, I won't repeat right now, but she's just sort of, so I watched my little sister kind of break and, and, you, and you do it because you're following a map of what you think a leader's meant to do. You know, don't show emotion, be strong, work through these things, um, you know, be clear, be transparent. Look, there was the, the job hadn't quite worked out. Um, and I think over time we, we both sort of found agreement in that. But that's the goop, that stuff sucks so much. Like I, this year just stepped to the side and we've deleted a, the CEO role and I've just become the head of design and we have a general manager and we've flipped the script on um, on the way we organise. We've gone to more of a, a self-directed organisation where people approve their own leave, uh, performance is analysed publicly with everyone sharing once a month, look, this is how I'm going and people can pull other people up and say, actually, I don't think you're holding your weight. And I think we get the design wrong sometimes by having um, a hierarchical design system where it all funnels up towards the the CEO who then has to um, be that you know decision maker when you just you face, a lot of the time you're kind of tossing a coin or you're sort of working on really weird human behaviour where you're like oh my gosh I wish you just hadn't have done this <laughs> um, so it's it's a it's a it's an icky part of how we've designed our organisation and I think we could design them a little bit more healthily to have a bit more transparency and trust through. Um, through the sort of way people come in the front door. And again, with that, that sort of sense of high expectations, we, we might be able to create some different environments around performance. So sitting down with my sister, for example, doesn't become a, the CEO fired me. It's very clear that, you know, everyone in the organisation along the way has just said, oh, actually, Elle, you, you might be struggling to keep up at the moment and there might be a bit more self-selecting and a bit more awareness if we if we can build some more consensus um, around the way we, we look at performance and we look at, uh, yeah, building teams and building organisations. There's a really, as a side, there's a really fascinating uh, book on, on this stuff by a guy called Frederick Lelou who looks at reinventing organisations and one model um, is the Burtzog healthcare system, which has just done this. They've completely flipped the script on how to organise healthcare and they've done this decentralised model and it's just, it's been cheaper, more effective and just led to heaps more innovation and happiness for all involved. And but there's something in that I reckon that um, that I learned over a period of time with with having to do some conversations like that. How's that health model changed how uh, how you run? Is that one of the the motivations for getting rid of the CEO role? Yeah, it was sort of part part of it was was that the the other one was just like oh, too much um, just. We're, we're just like we really are so flawed as beings, and it's so hard when you got that title to be like, 
yeah, okay, cool, I can be this person. Um, and you just can't sustain it for, like, I'd done it for 13 years um, as, and be a CEO and a board meetings, all this stuff. And you just, so much of the time you have to act and sort of pretend to be this sort of person that everyone wants you to be in the role. And, uh, yeah, I, I think the nature of it, there's a point person who has all this power and can make all the decisions. I didn't realise a lot of the time, like, I that people would be treating me differently um, because I was a CEO and I just didn't even clock it. I was just like, oh, they're nice to me. Well, oh, actually, I'm getting played. What am I doing? <laughs> and, and I think that um, trying, to, trying to get out of a game of like politics and power uh, and being the game of ideas and work is what we're trying to get towards and, and really just be able to do the work and, and try and be disciplined in that and, and not have to um, be caught up in the throes of tic-tac and personality politics and who's got power or who's got this or who made Like, just let's just commit to doing some work and try and do it really well and see if we can create some change along the way. Yeah, your approach seems quite different from the kind of charismatic leader model. Uh, there's a, a, another bit in your book that I loved. Uh, a position description offers light, as do manuals training videos, values, internal newsletters, monthly updates, staff retreats, distilling your mission into a single sentence. It's worth getting right, or at least trying to. You're very serious about organisational structure, which, which I love, because uh, so many in the not-for-profit not world just aren't. Well, we, um, we, it's like I just looked at, when I came into the, the, the non-profit sector, I came out of the a world of wanting to be a pro athlete and you just like in, in that mindset I wanted to borrow from everybody anyone had ever been any like skill I could learn I just wanted to borrow from any field and it just felt like the, the way that you won and you, you were the best version of yourself and and I think when I got into this space it was like why why is there just a separate set of rules on what's cool just because and, and we're working on some of the toughest stuff so we should have the highest possible standards and expectations and you know reporting we did an interim report and an annual report in our first year when i was 19 at uni because i actually wanted to know if the thing worked um at least try to uh, get an insight if it had any value and and i think that really um i could then see after that phase of kind of trying to track impact that that if you could run a great organization or if you whatever that you know that's a what what makes something great is complex but if you could run an organization that could scale and find the right infrastructure for people to be able to do what they could do then that, that was what gave you the chance to change a country or to change the world the idea um that's a challenge to solve something but then it's about how you get that uh to scale which um you know the, the idea i'm most excited about which we've sort of landed on now is we've almost gone Back to the Future, we sort of did 16 years of, of delivering this experience and exploring how to tackle this problem of education inequality. And then in the last uh, four months, we've made the decision that we're going to open our own university and, and go from doing the work ourselves to then training people to go out and, and helping them organise uh, to then end educational inequality and focus in on, on five groups. So we're now going to provide degrees for teachers to go through an experience with us and set up imagination factories in their school and, and teach with the curriculum we've designed over 16 years. And, and then we've got a program for, for university students, which is doing the model of what we, we've done to date. But for now, they'll do it as 
student chapter leaders, which is what I'm sure you know the story of Obama or you know Jacinta Ardern or any a lot of our political leaders who have made their way to where they've got to. They've they've had an organising apprenticeship, and and that was what I got to do in those early years at university. I got to work out how to go and um, convince someone to act a different way, and I got to do the pitching on the street, and I got to get rejected and get used to it, and. A lot of people were in the Young Labor or the Young Liberals Club at the time and they went on to become politicians and, and they they were doing the same thing. So being able to give young people from marginalised backgrounds the chance to cut their teeth at scale is really exciting. And so I think that the the thing which excites me the most about this university, Imagination University, and founded, is it's based on a design principle of freedom and, and it's not going to cost us as much money as what it did to run the organisation before and we'll be able to work with more people and I'm constantly trying to get us back to zero. I want to get AIM out of the picture in terms of having to be responsible or or money having to drive what we're doing and if we can get ideas and knowledge and case studies in place and then create a network and a community then there's a world where AIM can potentially be working all around the world and motivating all these university students and Maybe we've got one overhead, which is the hoodies we're going to give to the uni students. But we can, we can get. If you, I think, if you're chasing freedom and solving the problem, they're two very strong design principles to try and work towards in this space. Because you, um, yeah, I, I got scared about 10, 12 years in. I was like, this is just increasing. So what? We get, we then go back to the government. We're like, oh, can we have a million dollars now instead of you know 500 grand? And then we ask, we, you keep having to ask for more and more money. That doesn't tell me that you're doing a better job necessarily, but it is one lever that we value. If you're growing, if you've got more staff, oh, well, you've got staff, Jeff. Okay, you must be a very good CEO. No, that just means that we've managed to get some more money and scale to a certain point. And we could do more. I think we can do more with 50 staff or 40 staff. Uh, We could potentially create more change than we would with 1,000 staff. And so I think being conscious of some of the traps of growth is important when you're designing organisations as well. Let me uh, switch gears to your uh, to, to the notion of mentoring. I mean, you thought very hard about what it is to, to be a good mentor and mentee. Um, do you have mentors yourself? And if so, how do you choose them and how do you, how do you use them? Yeah, I, um, I sort of had a, hit a bit of a low spot in my mid-20s energetically and I, I'd sort of done, I don't know whether alpha male thing or just like I can muscle my way through everything I can win everything and um and I just lost that I just I lost balance and perspective and and really soul food and energy and so went to a counselor for the first time and and she started talking about how I could feel she was worried that I'd live this amazing life and have newspaper articles and things about me and be lying on my deathbed and not have actually felt any of it or remember what it felt like and and I think that led me to start to dig into the support team that I got to share my life with and and that Mm. includes you know having being open to falling in love and I was really scared and I'd sort of looked at love and I was like oh well that seems to be the only thing that takes successful people off their path that was my sort of brain going well that's that's not controllable if if I fall in love I might not chase this or, and I might do something different. And, and that fear of losing control um, and share, and really sharing, a, you know, your, your psyche and your being with people is, um, is yeah, it opens you up. And so that, that was, after that point, I then reached out to someone and asked if they'd be interested in, like, coaching me and, and a guy called Greg Hutchinson who's at Bain & Company, had been there for a long time. And, 
he he introduced me to this idea of a, a personal board of advisors. He was like, well, if you've got a board of directors um, for the organisation, why don't you do the same thing for you? And that really resonated because I could kind of be strategic and think about it and think about the areas where I was where I didn't have necessarily a great amount of skills and maybe I want to bulk that up or the stuff where I thought I could be kind of pretty good at and maybe I wanted to get some other people around that as well. And so I've sort of had since, you know, probably for a decade now, like, um, like a group of different people who have cycled in and out of that personal board of advisors and done my best to put structure around it and say, let's catch up every couple of months. And, and then we've evolved. One-on-one or do you, do you get the entire board together? No, one-on-one, yeah. And then the more, the timing that seems to be nice is, you know, find, ask someone if they want to commit for 12 months to, and catch up every couple of months and see so the success in throughout the year. And then we've done a, we've sort of modelled that into our leadership team, which has been one of the ways that I can step out of um, being that CEO role is for 20 of our leadership team, we have a mentors and residents program and we have two cycles of a three-month program where we bring in people who have done interesting stuff and they get to share their knowledge. And it's just so... It's so nice. It's uh, very rarely will someone say no. They often the first thing they feel is like just so um, they feel like the, the the greatest compliment's been bestowed on them because of their knowledge matters. And if they say no, it's often just because of time. And um, yeah, I think that that juice has been a really healthy thing to have. And I think Mum sort of like. Mum sort of sat, sat on my hip as a bit of a mentor, a shepherd, as well as being a mother along the way. And especially in the last sort of 12 months that I started painting, I'm just like spending paint, painting some mum all the time. Um, so it's nice to have a few different channels and places that you can you can share that energy with. And I, I think as I've fallen in love and, um, and had a family with, a, with my partner, Yael, that having those mentors uh, become even more important so you're not putting too much pressure on your partner to be everything for you and, and you can sort of yeah lighten the load a little bit and you've got a few petrol stations that you can sort of check into and or electricity stations you can check into for a recharge so i love the uh, the metaphor of charging stations i think it's a, it's, it's brilliant uh and uh, and the way in which you're kind of thoughtfully using your mentors i think is uh, is terrific uh do you find that uh there are certain things that you need to do as a mentee to get the most out of your uh, those relationships uh, do you sit down before those conversations and work out what it is you want you want to share and so you're not just sort of um talking about the first thing that's uh, that, that's on your mind yeah, I think structure is awesome for mentoring and that's sort of how um, you know, we've designed it with the, the kids and the university students. So being able to, for our mentors and residents program, for, for our staff, we actually structure the theme and have a, you know, a loose framework for people to be able to follow or to, or to defy if they want to. Um, so having that, uh, that, that framework or at least an objective gives you something to work towards. And you know, I remember having a really fascinating um, relationship with a guy called Tony Berg, who is a former uh, CEO of Macquarie Bank, and you know Tony and I are very different people. And I went into the first session, and it was a huge boardroom, and we were sitting opposite of each other, and it was kind of like I was in one of those weird um, Victorian sort of film scenes. And he, the first session, just felt so uncomfortable. I just couldn't, I couldn't get any rhythm, or I couldn't find a way for us to to connect. And the next one, I was like, no, go back. Come on, like, you've got to be able to learn something from this guy. And, and then I asked, I just wrote down in my notebook in, on the way to Martin Place, I was like, maybe just ask him what his, 
what he likes or what he's good at or stuff that he's loved learning. And, and then he, when I asked him that question, he said negotiation. And we just had a really rich conversation around negotiation and around being able to leave the table and not being afraid of leaving the table and, um, and knowing your worth and that that can really change the, the dynamism of a, um, of a negotiation. And that was just really cool. It was a really great gift and I wouldn't have got it if I didn't go in with a, a question that sort of opened up the channel and, and be a bit persistent. So I think you have to do the work as a mentee before you walk into a session with a mentor. Yeah, that's interesting. And that notion that uh, that you've got to not only think about your own needs, but also the the, the conversation from the perspective of the, the person on the other side. Um, I'm always struck by the, the folks I know who have the, the best emotional intelligence seem to have this uncanny ability to flip the conversation and to, to experience it through the eyes of the person they're speaking with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Greg's one of those who you feel like... Uh, you're in a session with him for two hours on coaching and he's coaching you and he asks like three questions and then you feel like a genius on the other side and I know what he's doing now. I know he's got all this body language technique and stuff he's refined over years and he's got a certain tonality and way of asking the question and raising his eyebrow every time he gets me because he's worked out how to walk you to the door when you're learning, which I'm hoping that AIM's getting you know closer and closer to being able to do that as a, as a storytelling and educational group that we're we're giving people the ability to sort of come into a world and make that feel like they're making their own way and they are making their own way on the adventure. And, you know, and the thing with changing kids' lives for us is the kids have changed their lives every single time. Like we just provided a, a pathway for them to walk down and, and that's it. Like we're good gardeners that sort of, you know, garden a nice pathway that they want to walk down and they do all the work. And I think that's the, um, the real trick on, on understanding emotional connections with people is, is that you're asking people to do a bunch of work themselves and uh, your job is to kind of yeah, be that gardener or be that shepherd for, for either that short-term emotional experience or for the longer-term experience as they set out their way to, to try and create some change in their life or, or the life at large. Jack, let me throw a handful of final questions at you. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Keep being a punk and it'll work out. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? That winning mattered. You don't think winning matters any longer? I thought you, because you, you once said you wanted, you wanted AIM to be one of the coolest brands on the planet, up there with Red Bull and Nike. Isn't that about winning? No, yeah, I think I'm wrong. I, okay. I, think, I, was, I think I was chasing a, an idea that you had to be the best um, and measured and that reputation mattered and that the yeah and the competition matter that you actually you know that we wanted to win awards and we wanted to be the best place to work and we all these things like just do your thing like release yourself from reputation and and don't in winning there's losers like that that sucks in in winning there's losers and i think for for uh, for me in my life now i i've got a a nice calm energy inside of me instead of a a mania to try and get to the next level and I know that if I get to the next level now there's still emptiness there unless I can work on that inner fulfillment of just being satisfied that enough is enough and I'll contribute what I can in a day and in a week and our organization will do what we can and there'll be a lot outside of our control a heck of a lot outside of our control and um and that'll either work with us or against us and um 
and we'll do our best to move with it. But I think finding peace to move with the energy uh, that's around you and not sort of chasing this muscular drive to um, to win at all costs, I reckon it got me to where I needed to get to. Uh, but as an Einstein line that the, you're not going to solve tomorrow's problems with the same level of thinking that got you to where you are today. And I think that it's in a different space now. And I think that our organisation is in a different space where well, we don't have to win. Um, we just we just got to try and do the work and, and see where that takes us. Do you think sport led you astray on that score? I think it taught me discipline. That's why I love the Escott Fitzgerald line. I think it's complex. It taught me a lot of discipline. It taught me hunger. Uh, it taught me to work harder than anybody else, and that helped. Like, when I looked at my 20s. I was looking at the pathway of all my peers and went, right, if I drill it for a decade, I'm set up for life. I can... I can do things. I thought about whether, you know, I wanted to play cricket for Australia partially because it would give me a voice to maybe create some change and, you know, have some power or influence or relevance to, to shape the world. And, and so I wanted that. And, and then you get to a certain point and you realise how dangerous it is. And, um, and yeah, we just went and saw a portrait of Dorian Gray, a friend of ours, done an amazing job and EJ sort of concepts and, and built it all out and, um, and worked with Kip at, at the Sydney Theatre Company and it was that story of Dorian Gray is one that I, is really important reminder to me of, of how dangerous the world of power, politics, competition, winning, um, wanting to be forever young and, and, and not being able to settle with the, the natural reality of death and um, irrelevance that'll happen to all of us. So I think finding finding that that peace within the journey is um, is what I'm trying to do. Which is also why I really like Cool Runnings of film, which is which Cool Runnings means peace be the journey. So there's a couple of thoughts. When are you most happy? Uh, the combination, like with my daughter and my partner, it's just so fun. Like, and then I get pretty exhausted after about two and a half hours, and then I, balancing that out um, with with maybe playing with some paint, I'm having a lot of fun with these days. And, and then in our world, in Ames world, where all our teachers and storytellers at the university are, are puppets. Um, and so I've been working and training to be a puppeteer in the last sort of two and a half years. And I'm really excited about um, trying to, to build our own hill and our own version and be inspired by what Jim Henson and Carl Spinney and all those guys do with education and with puppets. And so I love puppeteering, painting and PEMAU. And yeah, okay. so yeah, that's three P's and a Y. I was about to ask you what the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy is, but it sounds like it's uh, tapping into the artistic side. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that, that sort of, that's really helped. I, it, it has very much helped in the last twelve months with all of the all of the energy moving around the world and trying to be, you know in and around that being able to paint has been a really safe space for me to go and just let it out and then be able to walk away from the studio and, and go home. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Chocolate, chips, chocolate, chips. <laughs> and finally, Jack, uh, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think the concept and the story of of Mandela and, and what he did and specifically the 27 years on Robben Island, I think is the, 
one of just the great human lessons of patience and time and forgiveness and vision and fortitude and intelligence. And so I, I see his story in that frame as um, as deeply inspiring. And then being on the ground in um, in Pretoria for AIM to start there or as we were about to get AIM up and running and, and meeting a couple of young black South Africans who are about to go on and be mentors and guides. And in time, we've got to know the Mandela family a little bit. And that's been a, a really, really special um, story to be a part of and connected to after reading on Walk to Freedom, sitting in the Koori Centre Library in 2003, 2004, searching for an idea and then being able to land in South Africa and on the continent of Africa and do some work from the ground up um, with Nelson's family has been a, a really beautiful gift that I've been lucky to be a part of during my time with him. One of humanity's great figures. Jack Manning Bancroft, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Linda Burney, Bruce Pascoe and Louise Taylor. Jack Manning Bancroft is one of the social entrepreneurs that Nick Terrell and I profile in our new book, Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. We appreciate getting feedback on this podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.